Let us pray. Gracious God, as we come before your word this afternoon, we pray that your spirit might speak to us. We ask that with a spirit of knowledge and expectation because it's Sunday. Your church is gathered together around your word. Your spirit is in our midst and your spirit ordains to speak with power through his word. We ask and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, this is a time to uh, set aside the bulletin for now and to um, take up one of the other two handouts that I trust you have. One is an outline of what I intend to say during our time together, and the other is a translation of the passage. And in preparing um, the message each week, I, I prepare a translation of my own that I check against others to make sure that I'm not doing anything wrong or inappropriate. And as Robin has read already for us, we are reading John chapter 20, verses 19 to 30. And I was thinking that I would be back in Matthew by now, but I couldn't resist one more Sunday in John. One more Sunday in John at the season of Lent and Easter. So over the last four weeks, including this week, we've been doing a series on the Gospel of John, and we have been focusing on ways in which faith and life in Jesus are often echoed or anticipated in the story of Lazarus and his family in John 11 to 12. And as I was thinking about the theme of kind of Lazarus, and as we were coming to the, uh, the end of this series, I thought it might be helpful if you sort of picture not toys are us, but laz are us with the backward R. Uh, because Lazarus contains lessons about the R that are us. Lazarus. Lazarus was kind of a, a prefigurement of both our destiny and that of Jesus when he was raised from the dead. And we noticed several things about Lazarus. He knew he was dead, and that's a good condition in which to accept God's grace. Don't try and do much on your own. You'll just get in the way. God loves bestowing his grace upon people who recognize that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And then by the grace of God, we are made alive as Lazarus was. And Lazarus's picture was rather comical. He comes out of the tomb still wrapped in those clothes and he needs help getting those grave clothes off. And so it's kind of a faulty picture of the future resurrection. And as we were reminded last week, we live in the future. <coughs> Excuse me. Between the now and the future, between the already and the future. We also learned that Lazarus was one who gathered crowds on behalf of Jesus. He was a bit of a spectacle. We don't know a single word that Lazarus ever spoke, but we know that his life made a difference because when people came and saw what God had done in Lazarus's life, they wanted to know more about Jesus. And then when we finally came last week at Easter to look at the resurrection story, we compared it to the story of Lazarus's resurrection. And we took some lessons from it on the importance of uh, trusting in Christ, on the importance of allowing the church to help us on our journey towards that future day when our bodies will be fully resurrected. And so as we were coming to the last series on John, 
I thought, well, I can't tie Lazarus into the resurrection story. We're just done with it. <clears throat> but wouldn't you know, as the week goes on, you get surprised in the course of your study. I mean, I thought this was a passage that I was familiar with, um, and um, I have been um, been humbled and and uh, and blessed uh, by noticing a number of things in the passage that um, I hadn't noticed before, including a tie-in with the story of Lazarus, believe it or not. And I don't think I'm just making it up. Sometimes you see what you want to see, right? So uh, what am I talking about today? I want to talk about faith. I want to talk about believing in Jesus. Because nothing could be more important. John tells us, as I have at the head of the outline, that the whole reason why he wrote his gospel was halfway through. So that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why? Because by believing, we may have eternal life that starts today. We learned last week that eternal life isn't something in the future, it's something that has begun already. You're a forever person if you believe in Jesus. And the life of the world to come has come into your life already. There's more to come, it gets better yet, but it's already begun. So what I'd like to do today in our time is, um, and it's at the top of the outline in bold, is to answer the question, what can we learn from the interaction of Jesus and Thomas that will encourage us to keep on believing? Not Jesus and Lazarus, but Jesus and Thomas, but we'll see the Thomas-Lazarus connection in a minute. What can we learn from the interaction of Jesus and Thomas in John chapter 20 that will encourage us, as John wants us to do, to keep on believing? Uh, now, you'll see me vacillate between talking about keeping on believing and simply believing, because in the text of John's Gospel, at John chapter 20, there is a variant um, in the manuscripts, and there's about equal evidence for it being John saying that we may continue to believe or that we may believe. And in the end, it doesn't matter. John wasn't interested in us believing and then no longer believing. So it's a book for new believers that they might come into faith, but it's a book also for mature believers that we might continue in faith. So there are three answers to that question that I'm not going to deal with specifically, but I hope by the end, if you look at the answer to that question, you'll see that we have come to it in the course of um, our meditation. So I want us to begin by looking at John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29, under the theme of faith. And I pray that as a result of our time together, that your faith might be fostered and encouraged. Because here we have the example from Thomas of a skeptic. Thomas wasn't born yesterday, and he wanted good evidence of the fact that Jesus was bodily resurrected. And he insisted on it, and God in his grace provided it. So let's take a look, first of all, at John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. And then in the second part, we're going to focus in on the all-important idea of believing. Believing in Jesus. John has, in a way, redefined belief in his gospel. He, he looks at it in a way that, that no one else, so far as we know, ever has, in some ways. Well, the first thing to notice about our passage is to, get to the, is to get to the heart of it, I suppose, and that would be to recognize that John chapter 20, verses 21 to 23, give us John's version of the Great Commission. 
If I were to ask you what is the Great Commission, you probably would turn to the end of Matthew's Gospel and recite Matthew's Gospel. Um, as Go into the whole world make and make disciples of people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Well, this is John's version of the Great Commission. In verse 21, he says to them, again, we'll get to that, peace to you. He gives a greeting. He bestows a blessing upon his congregation, upon his followers, because they have seen the resurrected Christ. And now, as the resurrected and glorified Christ, he fulfills the promise that he had earlier in the gospel. And he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And having said this, he gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. He exhaled. He breathed on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven of them. If you retain, they are retained. So this is John's nutshell version of the Great Commission, as it were, and there are points of similarity and difference with that found in Matthew. They complement each other. The point is that Jesus is risen, and he's sending us out on a commission, and he's not sending us out empty-handed. He is fulfilling the promise that he had that he would send the Spirit to be with us so that we continue the work of Jesus. Jesus' work is continued in believers who are bestowed with the Spirit and who talk about the message of the gospel. Verse 23 is a challenge. We dealt with it earlier in Matthew a few months ago. And I want to refer you to the notes that, um, that will be coming a little bit later on. At least for now, I think I'm going to change the style of my sermon presentation by not having you with the 10 page notes, but with a, a more detailed outline of the translation. And I'll send the notes afterwards because some of you are telling me that you just kind of read the notes. And it gives me a little bit more time to focus on a better outline. My one last week was kind of shady, I must confess. Okay, so we have the Great Commission in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. But given the fact that our focus this week is on faith, I want to look at John 20, 19 to 29, and to pick up some lessons on faith. Well, if we go back to verses 19 to 20, uh, we'll see the ideal context for building your faith as a Christian. Being there for the evening of that day, it was resurrection day. The first day of the week, friends, it was Sunday. The doors were locked where the disciples were owing to the fear of the Jews. This is a band of brothers, as it were, who were under attack from their enemies. They were targets, as Lazarus was. So Christians, ideally, are people who meet on Sundays who are conscious of the fact that the message they've been given is countercultural, and Jesus comes and stands in the middle of them and proclaims unto them, peace be to you, the gospel. Someone has well observed that this is kind of a picture of what might have been a sort of a, a schedule for a liturgy. It could have been the skeleton version of evening prayer or morning prayer or perhaps even Holy Communion. So one of the ways in which we grow in our faith, and this is the first lesson of faith, is that we do it with a fellowship of believers on a Sunday, when we gather around his word, when Jesus comes and speaks to us in his word. If you're struggling in your faith today, and you're going to find out soon that we all do, it's a misnomer to think that you've arrived in the faith department. 
the best way to foster your faith, the best way to explore your faith and to continue in it is to do what you're doing right now. It's Sunday. Where are you? You're here. What are we doing? Gathering around the word. What are we affirming? That Jesus is in our midst. That the Holy Spirit is here. And that we have a message of good news to share. But I want you to notice what happens in verse 20. Let's go back to the end of 19, because Jesus came, stood in the middle of them, and says to them, peace to you, which just isn't kind of um, a typical greeting in this context. It is, it's a monumental peace to you. It's kind of, guys, guess what? It's all come together, and I know you didn't understand it before, but I'm back, and I'm here. So, peace to you. And they all just kind of go, oh my gosh, the world is no different because he's back. But then we noticed in verse 21, it said, he said to them again, peace to you. So there was something that interrupted Jesus before he came to his great commission. And I think it's this, that when he looked around at them as the resurrected Christ, he sort of thought, hmm, this is probably kind of weird for them. And they're probably kind of wondering if this is the real deal. So Jesus kind of takes a little time out and having said, peace to you, he showed them his hands and his side. Folks, look, it really is me. And in Luke, we understand that Jesus kind of explicated this further. He invited them to examine. He showed them his hands and his feet. And he said, look, it is I. And he actually asked for a piece of fish, not because he was hungry, but because, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty well kept secret in our world because we don't believe in ghosts and spirits, but Ghosts don't eat food. Only real bodies eat food. So they watched Jesus ingest this fish, and they said, oh my gosh, it's a real person. And look at the nails in his hands. It's Jesus. It's him. It's not some twin. It's not a lookalike. It's him. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a lingering post-viral cough, but I'm going to live, and I beg your indulgence. So he showed them his hands and his feet, and the reaction was <clears throat> Easter joy. They rejoiced at seeing the Lord. They rejoiced at seeing the Lord. And the words seeing the Lord kind of captured the faith of the first century community. You remember in the last paragraph in verse 18 of John 20. Thanks, Logan. Mary comes and tells the disciples, Mary Magdalene, after having seen Jesus in the garden, she says, I have seen the Lord. And here they say, they rejoiced at seeing the Lord. Now we skip to after the Great Commission. And now look at verse 24. And, he, and so uh, we realize that Thomas wasn't there. And so he was left out of the picture. And we read in verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who is called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. I want you to know that I'm going to be hard on Thomas this Sunday, harder on Thomas than I think just pretty much almost any other Bible interpreter that I've run into. But I'm going to stick to my guns and just let you know that this is my interpretation of Thomas. I'll give you the evidence for it. And if you want to be easier on Thomas than I am, be my guest. Thomas wasn't there on Sunday. And as Trevor asked during our Wednesday Bible study, when we were talking about this, 
he just kind of said, like, where was Thomas? We're not told where Thomas was. And it doesn't really matter where you are. If you're not in church on Sunday, you're not where you should be, right? Now that's extrapolating a little bit, but it does say he was not with them when Jesus came. Now Thomas, we know, is going to express doubt. But I want us to understand that I think John is pointing to Thomas as being a particularly dubious character at this point. Here's the evidence. One of the twelve. If you look up the expression, one of the twelve, and I did it this week, and I found that the only other time anyone is called one of the twelve in any of the Gospels, or anywhere else in the Bible for that matter, it's who? Judas Iscariot. It probably occurs eight or nine times, and in every other case, the one of the twelve is Judas. But here, Thomas, one of the twelve, is singled out. Who is called the twin? Now, the word, the word Toma in, in Aramaic means twin, but it also can mean um, doublet or um, other. <coughs> and it's if to imply that this is somebody who maybe has kind of a, an alter ego. By calling him the twin is saying that this is a kind of guy who comes in twos, right? So Thomas might well be a picture of the double-minded man. And so um, Thomas, who is called the twin, kind of like there are two parts to him, you know, maybe an identical twin. Sometimes he's doing pretty well and sometimes he's not. He was not with them when Jesus came. Well, okay. The other disciples in verse 25 say, they kept saying to him, we have seen the Lord. Believe it, we've, we've seen him. Mary said it, we're now telling you. But then it couldn't be more emphatic. He says to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hands into his side, it's a triple whammy, I will never believe. So I think we're seeing here a pretty obstinate Thomas. We see it by his words. We see it by the way that John has described him. And we can also see it if we take a moment and just look back, um, if you have your Bibles, at John chapter 11, verse 25, and if not, or sorry, sorry, John, um, John 11, verses 14 to 16. This is in the story of Lazarus. Jesus has told, is telling his disciples that Lazarus has died, so in John eleven fourteen, we read, Then he, that is Jesus, told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that, he was not, that I was not there. So that, and listen for it, so that you may believe. Lazarus is dead. I'm glad that I was not there to resurrect him sooner, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then it says in verse 16, Therefore Thomas, also known as the twin, said to the co-disciples, and here he picks up on what Jesus said, Let us go also that we may die with him. Now this passage is understood differently. Some see in it a tone of bravery. Some see in it a tone of faith. But there's also in it a tone of cynicism. And here we see back in chapter 11, Tom
Thomas was already sowing the seeds of his disbelief. When he refused to take the sign of Lazarus, as Jesus announced it, as a fostering point for his faith, he was cynical and said, oh, you want to go and visit him? Fine. We, we just told you that the Jews are out to kill you. So yeah, let's go to Jerusalem and let's die. Yeah, let's go. So I think already in Thomas's life, he may have missed an opportunity or two to be stronger in faith. So that's the Lazarus connection. Let me find my outline again. Here we go. You think the outline is to keep you on track, is to keep me on track. So that's the Lazarus connection. Then we find in verses 27 to 29, this is Jesus responding to Lazarus, to, to um, Thomas's um, pushback. And here again comes the theme. After eight days, now that's a Jewish way of saying a week later. So on yet another Sunday, The week after Easter, this very Sunday, friends, his disciples were again inside, inside the house, perhaps of Mary Magdalene, we're not shown, and Thomas is with them. Yay, Thomas. Jesus comes like he did last week. The doors having been locked, there's still a band of brothers uh, risking persecution and risking harm, but deciding it's worth worshiping anyway. He stood in the middle of them and said, Shalom Aleichem. Peace to you. He knew what happened the week before. He knew, well, he knew what happened when the disciples were talking to Thomas because he, we're not given any introduction. He just goes straight to Thomas and he says, hey, fella, I know what you were thinking. I know what you said. Bring your finger here and see my hands and bring your hand and put it into my side and be not delete, be not disbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. There's no indication that Thomas even needed to do it. Seeing was enough. Knowing that Jesus knew was enough. He saw it and he was won over. My friends, when this affirmation of Thomas, my Lord and my God, bookends the gospel, because it bookends what we heard in John chapter 1 in the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now it's clear that Jesus is God through the whole thing, but very rarely does anyone come right out and say it, until Thomas here at the end of John says, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus invites us into the scene. You see, he knew what Thomas said. And he knew that Thomas was doubting. And anyone who would know what Thomas was saying a few thousand years before knows what's going on in the mind of his own congregation a couple of centuries later, a couple of millennia later. And he says to Thomas in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. And here he gives a beatitude, like in the Sermon on the Mount, with all the authority of a beatitude. Happy are those who without seeing me have believed. Happy are those who without seeing me have believed. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I wasn't. Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? I wasn't. Happy are you 
Jesus is reaching right out of the book and he's looking in your eyes and saying, blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. He gets it. Do you know how we know he gets it? <laughs> it's kind of a double whammy because he showed up and he honored Thomas's doubt. He said to Thomas, okay, you need proof? Here's proof. And so John records for us Jesus coming to Thomas and inviting him to put his finger there in his hands and inviting him to put his hands in his side. And we hear Thomas's verdict. Thomas says, I don't even need to do it. You are my Lord and my God. So we have here one more added testimony. And Jesus, at the same time as commending us for seeing and not believing, is giving us the belief that we would really like. There's an apologetic tone to this passage. In one of my quotes that I think you'll probably find in, a, in, a, in, in the notes or somewhere else, oh, it's at the top, it's at the top of the, uh, the outline, uh, just above the, the reading. The second paragraph. Does somebody want to read it for me? It starts, Thomas's requirement. Just stand up and read it. It'll give you a little break and me a little break. Nice and loud, don't be shy. At this point, you rely on somebody's down staff to bail you out. Patricia and Jake, you're off the hook. It's all hanging on who? Trevor, Mary Beth. Go ahead, Connor. Stand up. Thank you. It's a little bit like a double whammy in the sense that I would say to you, please be mindful of the poor. Please be mindful of the poor. 20 minutes after making a Bill Gates size deposit to the World Monetary Fund or to the Children's, Children's Monetary Fund. In other words, at the same time you're asking and blessing, you're contributing. So here Jesus contributes to John's faith. You notice what we're seeing? We've seen this many times in Matthew, and we see it again in John. Somebody does something wrong. The devil tries to tempt Jesus. God uses it to accomplish his perfect purpose perfectly. God uses it for boot camp. Here Thomas comes along and he doubts like crazy, and God uses it <laughs> as an example or a proof for us that we too might believe. My friends, God understands our disbelief. And here he accommodated it. He didn't scold Thomas. He just said, hey, bring your finger. Now that you know, don't disbelieve, but believe. So that's the John 20, 19 to 29. I realize our time is passing. Let me go quickly to the importance of belief in John because there's something crucial here that I want to share with you that I trust will be beneficial to your faith. Let's look more, more uh, generally now at the all-important idea of believing, and it's on the back of your outline, second page. Believing is really important to John. Believing is really important to Christians. It's important to the Christian faith. And by way of background, I simply want to say that um, <clears throat> we take this for granted, but in many other religions of the world, including those in the Greco-Roman world, it didn't really matter whether you believed. 
I mean, if you were going to a, a city that Paul visited, nobody cared whether you believed in Jupiter or Apollos. The important thing was that you gave your money and you, you, you did your due to the gods. And as long as you did that, you were pious. You did your civic religious duty. It was all rolled into one. And whether you believed or not, nobody would really care. Even today, you can be a Jew, according to many people's definition of a Jew, and not believe in God. The question is, are you practicing the Jewish religion? Are you doing the things that Jews do? But Christianity and, and the Hebrew religion of the Old Testament are different because they believe and we believe that something actually happened in history, that God came into the world and intervened, and that this in a way is the real deal. It's not just mythology, it really happened. So that means it's important to believe. That's why John wrote his gospel. And so belief for us Christians, and this is why we are so hung up on it, is because we believe that things happened that changed the world. We believe that God became human. We believe that Jesus died, that he was raised from the dead bodily. And so this whole idea of belief becomes important. Now John has a few different uses of the word belief. But its basic meaning just involves trusting someone or trusting something, like we did in our children's talk. You have a simple trust in Jesus. You believe he's a good person, more than that you must, but you believe at least that. You put your trust in him and you affirm that he is who the Bible says that he is. Now in belief, there's a connection between belief and testimony. And I know this is coming as quite a bit, but hang in here. The whole reason why belief is important and why it's still important today, if you think of the legal system, you'll see a connection. Okay, a crime was committed, people are saying that so-and-so did it. You weren't there. You're on the jury. What do you do? You listen to the testimony of witnesses. And it's based upon the testimony of witnesses that you declare your belief that so-and-so is guilty or not based upon the testimony of witnesses. That's the way it works. I mean, none of us has ever seen Michelangelo or Christopher Columbus, but we've heard about it. The people who tell us about it, we trust. The books that we've read, we trust. Um, so we, we, we do this all the time. We, we are rooted in the testimony of others. And in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, there's actually an amazing example of, um, of this. In, in kind of a throwaway statement, I'll just read it. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That's Jesus. But listen to what it says about Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, to the crowd. He was not believing himself to them, the crowd. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him. For he himself knew what was in a man. In other words, Jesus believes without testimony because he knows what's in your heart. He, he knows. And so he doesn't need testimony, but the rest of us do. And so believing in Jesus is rooted in testimony. And so the, we have witnesses to Jesus that come in John's gospel from John the Baptist. Jesus says, if you don't believe John the Baptist, look at the scriptures. If you don't believe the scriptures, look at Moses and what he wrote about me. If you don't believe in them, listen to my words. And if you don't believe in my words, listen or watch my works. So Jesus is continually mounting witnesses in favor of his own claim that he is who he is. 
And John wants to underscore this at pretty much every chapter through his gospel. And in John's writing, and this I found especially helpful, I think, do you know how many times the word belief occurs in John's writings? The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Well, John's big about belief, right? Once. The noun belief occurs only once. John uses the verb believe. You see, in John's writing, it's a verb and not a noun, implying that our faith is not something static, but it's, in, it's, it's alive and it's active and it's in progress because it's rooted in a relationship with a person. It's kind of like love. Do you love your husband? Oh, yeah. I, I, told him that the, I told him that the day we got married. He doesn't need to hear it again. Well, no, your love relationship between a husband and a wife is something that is played out and lived out and that undergoes challenges and undergoes trials but is affirmed over and over again and hopefully grows because it's a dynamic. It's a do thing, not a thing thing. It's a do thing in the context of a relationship. John says it's the same with Jesus. John even invents a unique term, believing into Jesus. That doesn't occur anywhere else. Think of the word diving. You could say, I'm a diving instructor, that's fine. But it's kind of, it's kind of ethereal and static. But when you talk about diving into the pool, you know that your diving skill is being invested in something into which you're going. That's what it means to believe in Jesus, according to John. I think a better illustration is not just dividing in, diving into a pool. That's not dynamic enough, but it's diving into a dynamic river over the whole course of your lifetime. There are times when the river's calm. There are times when it's almost a drought. There are times when it's a flood. There are times when there's white water. There are times when there's a waterfall. It's dynamic. And this is what John believes about faith. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering whether your faith is really intact, how much you believe, how much you don't believe, it's, it's, it's on a sliding scale. <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to the club. It's a do thing. It's a relational thing. And you need not feel badly one Sunday if your faith is kind of waning. It's not good. But you are invested in Jesus. And it's far more important that you have faith in Jesus. Because the Jesus is the living one who informs your faith and supports it. That's what he did for Thomas. You need proof, buddy? I'm going to make time for it. Here it is. And then he blesses those of us who don't have that kind of faith. So belief is a dynamic thing in John's gospel, and it is not a static thing. As it says at the head of my translation, faith can neither be stationary nor complete. Faith always becomes. So it's kind of a moving target, and you have a friend who's going to foster your faith and help your faith. So if you're losing your faith, don't walk away from Jesus. He's the answer. You say, Jesus, I think I'm losing my faith in you. You come to church. You fellowship with people. You look at the testimony of the gospel writers, and you hang in there because Jesus is Jesus. My friend, it vacillates as well. There are times when you believe a lot. There are times when Jesus will help you when you lack of belief. One of my favorite sayings, and I think I put it on the, 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 the heading I did of the outline, is the man in Mark chapter 9. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying in response to Jesus, Do you believe? I do believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Help 
thou, mine unbelief. So it's not just you kind of working up enough faith. You've got this object of your faith who's there to help and who's there to nourish it. My friends, these things were written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Son of God, and that by believing you may have faith, you may have, you may have new life in his name. The last thing that I want to say before I sit down is that the faith has to have a content. Um, it, it's rooted in, in, in actual reality, so that it's important to affirm certain things about Jesus. So you don't just believe into someone, you believe that thing or two or three or four about Jesus. And there's a list here that I've included in the outline that came from um, a New Testament theology by one of my heroes, uh, George Eldon Ladd. I don't think that you have to believe them believe all of the that's necessarily, but it comes under heading four. You believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God, that God sent him, that he is one with the Father, that he's come from the Father, that he is the I am, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he is the way to eternal life. And one of the other things that you can believe is the way that John's Gospel ends, and with this I will end, that by believing, you may, you will, have eternal life in his name. Amen.